0: Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are starting, you may be seated, sorry. We are starting a, uh, a new series um, like we did last year in November. Um, this last week uh, was All Saints Day. Um, it's a day celebrated um, by a lot of the church where we take uh, usually a day to look back at uh, pre, people who went before us, people of faith who lived before us. And we um, study them and, and honor them. And we decided to make a month out of it. So we uh, we spend the entire month kind of honoring people. So the next four weeks, we're going to talk about um, some of the people of the past. And I usually pick a variety of people. And what's interesting is the person we're going to talk about tonight, um, I did not pick him um for the reason that I wound up deciding to talk about him, I actually fell in love with this guy this week, um, probably because he had thirteen kids rookie um, and uh, and um, and i 'm I'm one hundred percent sure he had ADD, which is the other thing I fell in love with so um, so this guy um, but uh, the reason I picked him still valid we 're going to get to that at the end, but Lyman Beecher um, is who we 're going to talk about and our kids are studying the same thing um, through the month of uh, November. They'll study the same saints that we're studying. And so when you go home, if you want to ask them what they learned about it, would be kind of fun to see um, what spin. been. Uh, and it was fun because Esther and I got to kind of study these together um, so she could do the children's curriculum and I could... Uh, did she kill it last week or what? Like, for real. Oh, my gosh. Um, so... uh, uh so it was kind of fun. So they're studying the same thing. So If you want to ask them what they learned about it, it'd be kind of cool. But um, Lyman Beecher is the first thing we're going to do. He was born in 1775. So his uh, early childhood was obviously a wartime, um, the American Revolution. Um, and uh, he was born to a blacksmith, but his mother died shortly after he was born. And so he was adopted by his uncle and uh, and raised on a farm. And he was super active, had uh, like a farming work ethic, but wasn't much suited to farming, so he went to school. And uh, enrolled in Yale in 1793 and graduated uh, with a degree in theology and then went into the School of Divinity and graduated with a Master's in Divinity um, in 98. And he had an instructor who was a social activist that kind of got under his skin, and he really liked this guy. And uh, And so Lyman Beecher came out, although he was a uh, a presbyterian and an avid calvinist he had this funny um, social justice button that that a lot of calvinists of the day did not have and so it kind of made him an oddity amongst um, amongst his uh kind of presbyterian counterparts and he took his his first uh uh pastorate at a small um, church in uh East Hampton it was uh, the Presbyterian Church at East Hampton, Long Island, New York. And uh, and wrestled with the fact that he found his preaching dead. He said he preached all the time and it was like preaching to a brick wall was the way he wrote it. Um, he was preaching. He had good theology and he was uh, uh, saying all the right things and it was completely dead. And then there was a really famous duel um, where two famous statesmen, you know, in a proper, you know, I challenge you to, you know, Pistols at dawn type duel. They went out the next morning and one shot the other. And it was big news and blah, blah, And it just drove... And both of them were Christians. And it just drove him completely nuts. And so in an emotional whim, he writes this fiery sermon against dueling. And he said something about... Preaching against the act of dueling just ignited his congregation and it started a revival of all things. Preaching against the fact that one Christian shouldn't go out at dawn and shoot the other. And so he found that his people really responded to him preaching about a social issue because that wasn't what you did in a Presbyterian church at the day. What you did was you preached the gospel you know, straight out of the thing and you never really talked about what was going on outside of that. So he preached against dueling. And it went well. And so he he actually wound up publishing the sermon and and, and it, it got out that, that uh, this crazy Presbyterian preacher was preaching against dueling. And so he kind of began to get a little bit of a, uh, a reputation as a moral reformer. Um, and so he... Uh, <coughs> excuse me. I've had a cold all week, so I may have to cough more than I like to. Um, so after a while... His family continued to grow. He had a lot of kids, and pretty soon his small pastor could no longer afford to pay him enough um, for his growing family. And so he uh, put out applications and took a job at a little bigger church, this time in Connecticut in 1810. He took over the uh, Congregational Church in Litchfield, Connecticut, and he was there for 16 years. And um, he got there at kind of an interesting time. And this was not long after uh, the Great Awakening, and so there was a lot of uh, uh, movement in the way of like emotional preaching, which hadn't really been a thing yet, and so he was compelled by but there was also some weird stuff going on in Connecticut at the time, where up to this point, the, the Congregational Church was funded by Connecticut. It was a state-run church, so it got all of its um, funding and support from Connecticut, and um, this was for the first time uh, they were discussing separating the Congregationalist Church from the Connecticut government. And he uh, he fought against this hard. He had no idea how the church would ever survive if it was not funded. In fact, he was actually going the other direction. He wanted to make cursing, <laughs> um, drinking, and Sabbath breaking illegal in Connecticut. Like a, a law saying you could... You could not. If you got caught working on the Sabbath, it was punishable by, by jail time. And if you uh, if you got caught cursing in public or drinking, um, that it that it would be punishable by law. So he was going the other way. He was trying to stiffen the state's influence over moral issues. And uh, and the wider argument was, should the state even have any control or say in the church at all? And so this is a huge debate, and he engaged in it very publicly. In fact, uh, he said, I think I skipped a slide, yeah. Oh, yeah, a couple, actually, here we go. You know me. And so here's what he said about it. He wrote this publicly, or he wrote this right afterwards. It was a very dark day Uh it was a, as dark a day as I ever saw. The odium thrown upon the ministry was inconceivable. The injury done to the cause of Christ, as we then supposed, was irreparable. This is what he thought about, uh, Connecticut letting go of the church. And it did happen. Connecticut passed. I mean, they kind of had to, it was federal law, but they, they quit funding, um, the, the Congregationalist church with tax money and separated themselves completely from the church. And, uh, and so Lyman Beecher saw this as irreparable. There's no way the church will survive not having ties to the government. And so, um, so he, uh, protested against this, worked hard to stop it, it happened. And in a very kind of public, not long after, maybe only six months after, uh, the law was passed, he had this kind of very public, about face and a lot of people think maybe he was doing it just because he had no alternative. You might as well support it, you know. Um, but he came out and he said something that I thought was awesome, especially in our day. He said the best thing, he's talking about the separating from Connecticut, the best thing that ever happened to the state of Connecticut, it cut the churches loose from dependence on state support. It threw them wholly on their own resources and on God. They say ministers have lost their influence. The fact is they have gained. By voluntary efforts, societies, missions, and revivals, they exert a deeper influence than ever they could by politics. This is what Lyman Beecher said when the church separated itself or forcibly was separated from the government. I think this is pretty poignant considering where the American church Tends to find itself today. Almost feeling dependent on getting the right, you guys have heard me do this before, so I'm not going to spend much time. But almost feeling dependent on the right candidate getting elected. Like we, we have this feeling like if I, if, 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 boy, what's it going to do to the church? What's it going to do to the morality of America? Like what, like what's it going to, what's going to happen if we don't get our guy elected? If we don't get our person up there? You know, what, what's going to happen if, 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 if Washington isn't able to either back our moral issues or back our social issues. Like, you know, what what will become of us? And Lyman Beecher was faced with that and found afterwards that it was better for the church. It was better for the church to have to rely on itself, to have to rely on the Holy Spirit, to have to rely on God to advance the kingdom and not on Washington. So I thought that was point I had no idea that was in Lyman Beecher's life, but it was fun to find somebody that thinks similar the way I do, so I took it. Um, but this new civil environment created a pluralism that hadn't been there before. It created this kind of open space where new people, new ideas, uh, new denominations, honestly, could kind of spring up because the church didn't have the support of the state anymore. And so for the first time, um, there's a, a new dialogue, a new dialect happening in, in the public space um, over faith. And so um he found himself uh kind of a champion for calvinism against um unitarians is what they called him then it's not what we think of when we say unitarians today because it was a um, actually a very uh selective christian group um the unitarians of the 17 the late 1700s um, and they uh cuz they were unitarians were like embrace everybody like kind of wash out all theology so that we can all just kind of get along except for Catholics because they're all going to hell so definitely don't do that and definitely don't let non-believers in and like so they had like these weird like let's just all get along except for these people because they're weird um but it was the main thing they were kind of for was just kind of a dumbing down of all theology so that um, we could all get along. Let's just narrow it down to its its most basic parts, something we can all say amen to, and then we'll all get along. There won't be any reason um, to argue and fight and and be upset anymore. And it was strongly influenced by the Jeffersonians and a lot of deists, um, people who didn't really have a strong tie um, to the Christian heritage or especially not to Jesus but um but you know they were in a, a Christian culture and so it made sense to kind of hang on to the shell, but um but not necessarily uh its intricate um uh theologies. And so Lyman Beecher found himself kind of in in, in open debate with them, and he was kind of defending the sovereignty of God, and, and more than that, he was kind of defending uh absolute truth. He was kind of defending um you know, the objectivity uh, of of theology over this kind of new subjective um, un- understanding of the way faith should work. And he kind of got a reputation as a defender, as an apologist um, kind of debater who could engage this new Unitarian influence. And so in that light, he got hired to a much bigger church in Boston, where, which was the kind of the hub or core of Unitarianism, Hanover Street in Boston uh so he becomes the pastor there and here he uh his main job even though he's a pastor and, and of real people in a real church every sermon was basically des- designed there was even news people in the back capturing the sermon so they could put it out as the next wave of the debate and then they would publish the unitarian debate in contrast and so really they're having this sunday by sunday open debate in their churches Against each other, so the next week the Unitarians would respond to his sermon, and the next week he would respond to their sermon. It became this kind of interesting public um, debate through the through the pulpit, which was kind of strange. But um, but he was also challenged because they were saying some things, and and the biggest thing that was happening was Lyman Beecher was finding that um, that the church was growing. More and more divided and more and more sectarian um, as they continued to debate. It wasn't um, it it wasn't winning one side over the other, and there were groups that were getting so frustrated with the, the animosity of these two sides that they were separating firmly into their side because these two obviously don't have it together. They can't stop fighting, and he was he was noticing this this deeper level of sectarianism that was happening through this public kind of argument that was taking place. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That sound yeah. Um, so uh I'm pretty sure that the the he was on Hanover Street, I'm pretty sure the Unitarians were on Facebook. But um, <clears throat> but uh so he was uh he was a voice and it and it this went on and on and on um, until he finally was so exhausted from the debate uh and meanwhile he's remember when I said he had he, he was getting um, he was every day he would get newsletters from the West, and he was constantly inspired by everything that was going on in this magical land called the West, like what is happening out there and he was seeing this infinite mission field like oh man, the things the church could do and the people we could reach and the places we could go if we like if we 'd spread out west and and so his his interest in and kind of passion for this debate was weakening as he was getting more and more interested in what was going on, um, in the West. And so, eventually he retired from, uh, the church on Hanover Street and he took a position in Cincinnati, Ohio, which he called the London of the West. Um, I guess it was the kind of the beginning of, of going West in his day, but, um, and he saw it as kind of a beachhead. Like, if I could get established, on the edge of the West, we can send out missionaries and just send out people. And so he became the first president of Lane Theological Seminary, um, hoping to train up um, new uh, leaders that that could all just go west like a flood, um, pouring into these new areas that were obviously at this point lawless and just completely wild as all the stories sounded and he just saw Lane Theological Seminary being able to just save and fix all that lawlessness. And so while he's here, um, an interesting thing happens. He had debated so long with the Unitarians in Boston that he had unknowingly uh, heard and, and even kind of absorbed some of their, uh, I don't know if I'd say theology, but some of their philosophy for sure. And so when he gets to Lane Theological Seminary, where he's surrounded by nothing but good old-fashioned Presbyterian Calvinists, he found himself the liberal. And he was like, you know, we should get along with other groups a little more than this. Like, you can have a conversation with them. They're like, what are you talking about? These are the bad guys. Like, And, and so he found himself suddenly... Um, like hungry for a dialogue with another side he had nobody to debate with anymore. And he found that he actually enjoyed having these people that were challenging him to think deeper. And, and he found that this dialogue that he had had with the Unitarians was actually healthy for him um, and found himself hungry for a deeper dialogue. So he's striking up debates and things at the, uh, at the seminary and at his church where he was the pastor. Um, and he was twice uh, I guess in the Presbyterian church you can actually be um, like taken to trial, like they can accuse you of heresy and you go before like a trial. So he was a, twice accused of heresy and defend his theology before the Presbyterian board um, because of these debates he used to try and stir up. And, and, he, and he would often find himself, for the sake of trying to make people think, debating from the side of the Unitarians um, because he knew their arguments well after all the debates he had had in Boston. And so he's having these arguments with... with uh, with his fellow Presbyterians arguing from the other side. And, and uh, so they accused him of heresy and, and, and he had to go and defend himself. Both times he was acquitted and they found that his theology was sound. But but from all this, he comes up with this theory, this this uh, thesis that, um, that it was possible to have theological division. So, believe deeply in what you believe and, and, and cling to that and don't weaken on that and yet uh, to have unity around social causes. And so his his idea was, is there a way for the church to... Um, because remember, he always had this kind of activist spirit and that got him in trouble too because he was a fiery preacher. And that's one of the things that um, his second trial, his second accusation was, uh, he was, he was uh, always a big fan of the fiery... Uh, Um, great awakening and even second great awakening preachers. Um, and so he was, uh, so Presbyterians don't do that. They just kind of talk monotone and, and calm and they just believe if you just declare the Word of God that the Holy Spirit will do the rest and you know. But he didn't like that. He liked, ever since his dueling message, he liked to really get up and, and kind of thump the pulpit and get rowdy and so all of his Presbyterian friends that, In uh, in Cincinnati, you're like, what are you doing, dude? That's what the Methodists do. Like, you don't get all worked up like that. And so that was one of the reasons he got accused, because they couldn't understand why a good, you know, a good theologically sound, theologically sound Presbyterian would need to get so worked up and rowdy and and try so hard to compel people. And so. and so, so, and all, and all through this time, I've kind of missed some of these. But all through this time, he's also growing in his social causes. It started with dueling. He actually was the co-founder of the American Temperance Movement. He tried to end um, drinking, and and uh, and it, it moved on to a bunch of other issues. And while he was in Lane Theological Seminary, he for the first time got engaged in the in the slavery debate, and uh, and the the school was kind of being torn apart by it because. It was basically a northern school, but a lot of their funders and a lot of their students actually came from the south. And so the school was kind of being torn apart by this debate anyway. And he was kind of forced to take a side. And so he wrote some, some papers and things basically saying, how is this even a discussion? There's no way slavery, you know, once he engaged it, he, he found himself firmly on the side of, of abolition and, 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 uh, and wound up actually dividing the school more and the school split and half... Basically all the southern kids went somewhere else and it was a, it was a huge mess, but he always had this kind of socialist, or socialist, this socially active, activist side. And then he had this kind of theologically engaged, um, you know, thinker side. And, and they were always kind of at war because neither, neither side, um, really had much of a, uh, support group. For the other side. So when he's over here with his activists trying to engage social issues, he finds himself to be the only Calvinist Presbyterian over there. And so they're all like, dude, how can you believe that stuff? And when he's over here with his theological buddies trying to talk about, you know, ending, you know, making alcohol illegal and and, uh, and making, you know, slavery illegal. And they're like, dude, that's all up to God. Why are you even like, we don't do that. And, and so he finds himself not really fitting in anywhere. That, uh, and so he came up with this theory like why can't all these different denominations hold to themselves and be who they are and, and be theologically sound within their group and, and allow for the debate and, and, and so not be Unitarian, not wash anything out, like be you know, poignant in your beliefs, while at the same time saying, and yet we all want to see the world be a more moral place, so what if we work together in that way? Without trying to say you have to believe what I believe in order for us to go help poor people, you know, or go, you know, in slavery, it's totally okay for us to believe differently and still work together for the common good. And so he, he, uh, believed in creating basically almost what we would call parachurch type organizations now. And that in the creation of this, different denominations could work together in these organizations, which is why he started, uh, the, uh, national Temperance Movement uh, or organization was to, and and he openly invited different denominations to join him in it, so that it wasn't a denominational you know movement, but it was an actual Christian movement that was multi-denominational, which was unheard of in this day, absolutely brand new in this day. Finally, while he was the president of Lane Theological Seminary, the slavery debate um, got so bad, and he got so worn out of constantly fighting that he retired. And went home and lived with his oldest son um, in uh, back in uh, Connecticut, I believe. And so he retires. I don't think I've actually got that with his son. He, so he lives out the last, I want to say, 15, 20 years of his life basically um, uh, as kind of counsel to his children, which is his last thing and the thing I really wanted to talk about. And this is the reason that I actually brought him up, because I didn't know that Lyman Beecher had really done much. I was actually um, reading about his daughter um, recently, and I thought, I wonder what her parents were like. And so I kind of started researching. And and uh, and his kids have written pretty extensively about him. Mostly, they've written about what kind of dad he was, not necessarily what kind of theologian he was. you got to read other works to get those. But um, according to his kids, he was an absolute hoot. Um, they said he was the world's biggest goofball at home the way they put it is he would he would play the violin and sing hymns at the same time while he danced around the house in his stockinged feet like that was unheard of nobody walked around the house you know in their in their socks but he would apparently sing hymns and play the violin and dance around the house in his socks and and it was a scandal. All the kids would giggle like dads running around with his socks, like that was a big deal. Which my kids could tell you other stories that would be way worse, way way worse. But um, but uh, my problem is happening on probably in just my socks. But um, but uh, they said he was constantly losing things. They said he would lose his hat or his jacket. Um, or his, uh, they'd lose. They'd say about every once a month he would lose his sermon. It would be Sunday morning, and he wouldn't be able to find his sermon, and he would be running around all over the place trying to find his sermon. Uh, they said when he wasn't losing things, he was giving them away. They said that they, the church started collecting coats for him because every time he saw somebody without a coat, he would take his coat off and give it to him. They said by the time, uh, while he was at uh, the Connecticut church, somebody tried to do a count. And they said they thought he had given away almost 150 coats in his time there just because he couldn't see somebody without a coat and leave his coat on. Um, they said that he had a, a crazy energy. If they were sitting around doing nothing, he had a pile of sand in the basement. And he would take his sons down and they would just scoop up the sand with a shovel, walk over and put the pile on the other side of the basement. And they would just work and talk until they had moved the whole pile to the other side and then they would go back upstairs. And the sand was there just for the sake of when you have nothing to do, we'll go shovel sand. And so... Uh, yeah, so he had a ridiculous, like, just burning energy. But, uh, uh, oh, and they, every single person in the family told a story of one time um, on a Sunday morning, he uh, ran over to a friend's house who was a pastor of another church and talked him into swapping churches. Um, so, which, back then you didn't just invite other preachers to preach to your church. He was like, what if we just traded churches? And so uh, he talked the guy into it, and so they showed up at each other's churches and, you know, it was a little bit of a stir, but they said the, the thing that actually made it fail was Lyman Beecher's church. Um, they used to bring the family dog to church. And so the dog comes in, sees a stranger standing at the pulpit, and loses its mind. Will not start bark, stop barking and growling at this stranger standing behind the pulpit long enough. And then the kids all start laughing, and the mom's upset that the kids are laughing. You know, back then you don't laugh in church. And so she had to march the whole family and the dog out of the church because they wouldn't stop Laughing, And so they've all got these crazy stories about what this guy was like at home. And my favorite one though was he used to engage his kids in debate and, uh, and he would pick a topic or he'd let them pick a topic and he would start debating with them. And so they would bounce back and forth and whenever... He uh, he felt them kind of getting weaker. He would give them pointers. He'd say, "Okay, now tell me to do this, or now say this." And he would he would give them he would give them little clues and and hints until they could finally start to put up a decent debate against him. And he would do this with his sons and he would do it with his daughters. Um, and so he was teaching them to think. And so every single one of his kids said, more than anything, "Dad taught us to think." He would he would challenge us in these in these debates. And then when we would, when he would ha- clearly have us beat, he would give us a major point so that we could stay in the debate longer and understand why that point was needed. And, and so he would, but he would always make us finish the debate until it was completely exhausted, even if he had to give us the last four or five, you know, points to get us there. And, uh, I read a, a documentary on him and, uh, the doc- the, the writer, not a documentary, a biography on him. And the biographer said, um, Lyman Beecher was probably the father of more brains than any other man in America. That his, of his 13 kids, two died young. And uh, the other of his 11 kids all turned out to be absolute brilliance. Most of them doctors um, of theology and stuff. One was uh, Henry Ward Beecher, who was known as the greatest preacher of that day. Um, the other of it, he had 11 sons. Um, all 11 went into ministry in some form. Four were presidents of seminaries. Um, and uh, the, other, uh, the other ones were preachers. Um, his uh, four daughters all became um, uh, civilly engaged and uh, activists of some form or another. Well, one was kind of funny. One uh, So two of them became kind of suffragettes, kind of for a fight for women's suffrage and women's rights, and were uh, kind of major uh, players at the beginning of, of the fight for, for women's rights. Um, The other one got married and um, and started a family and actually became an activist against the woman's right to vote. She was an anti-suffragette, which was kind of interesting. But it fit, and that was the other thing about his sons is they all went into ministry and it was um, they all not all had different, but of a varied um, group of theological backgrounds. Like they they didn't all become Presbyterian ministers. They were it was they were all over the board theologically because he made them see every argument from every side, and so. It was no different for for one daughter who um, engaged this kind of life to to enter the debate from her side and the other daughters who went a different route to enter the debate from the other side and then this fourth daughter um, married a man um, did I get his name uh, last name Stowe Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote uncle Tom's cabin and um, and became one of the primary uh books, you know, in the uh abolitionist movement and became a, a major influence in that. And that was why I found him. I was studying Harriet Beecher Stowe and I was thinking about doing her uh in our series and and uh and so I wanted to read about her early life and she had so many hilarious stories about her dad that it got me on this on this kick of of um, of being the parent or being the influencer of somebody amazing. Like, what's it like? Like, does anybody know who Amram is? Judy, you can't say. We already talked. Anybody know who Amram is in the Bible? Amram or Jochebed? Amram and Jochebed. They're husband and wife. I'll give you that much. Amram and Jochebed. They're the parents of Moses and Aaron. Like, can you imagine being the parents of Moses and Aaron? Like, those are huge names. Like, what if... And so... it. I, I got on this, so right around the time I'm studying Harriet Beecher Stone, I'm reading the Old Testament, I'd, I'd bump into, uh, you know, it, it, in, uh, Exodus 6, it's, it's given kind of a genealogy, it's one of those really boring passages, it's just a million names, and it says, uh, uh, Amram married Jochebed, Um it was actually his first cousin, I think, it's a big scandal, but um it's like, uh, Mary's Jacobbed and and they were the parents of Moses and Aaron. And then it goes right on to the next thing, and I was like, "Holy cow! How have I never known who Moses and Aaron and Miriam's mom and dad were? Like, how have I never heard those names before?" And so I'm I'm reading Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, and I'm reading about her dad and and this this nut. You know, I hadn't read any of his theology yet. I just read you know what she said about him at home, and and so I was like, "What like?" All of these amazing people had parents. Like, all of these amazing people had mentors. All these amazing people had somebody in their life that inspired them to be amazing. Like, that, that, that gave them the tools. And I started thinking, especially as going into this saint series and understanding, you know, talking about people who have gone before us, how many unnamed, unknown saints are back there that, that have absolutely changed the world and will never know their name. Like how many of those people who who inspired, who raised, who uh, you know influenced the Moses and the Aaron and the Harriet Beecher Stowe, you know, are there? And and one that jumped out at me, and, and uh, this is another person I was thinking about doing, but decided to kind of sneak her in. And I guess this is for our response. Uh, oh no, I didn't put the passage up. Well, that's all right. We'll just talk through it. With Lydia, you may know Lydia's role in the in the Bible. Judy and I talked about it a little bit, and it was, Bill, I see the look. You may know Lydia. What's that? No. She was the seller of purple, and that's what Judy said. She's the seller of purple, but, but the, her influence is actually a little bigger than that. Act 16. So Paul is in Asia Minor, and he's look at they had gone through a little missionary journey, and he kind of hit the spot where he said we tried to go here, and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let us. We tried to go there, and we were permit, we were we were forbidden, and so they're kind of bouncing around. So they stop on the coast, and they pray, and it said Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia calling out to him, "Come to us." And so at this point, you know, the gospel I should have put a map up. The gospel had kind of spread up through. Um, through the middle east and on into uh to asia minor but it hadn't crossed the mediterranean into europe yet it hadn't gone over and uh and so he gets a vision of somebody on the other side saying come over and help us and so he goes to macedonia and uh goes to a little town in macedonia called philippi and he's they're looking for a synagogue there's no synagogue and so there's nowhere um, for, that was his that was his mo was he would go into the town find the synagogue engage in debate And usually there would be some Gentiles listening in. And if the if the synagogue wouldn't accept him and they were they would debate with him, the the Gentiles would come up afterwards and say, hey, can can we hear about this? And so he would he would engage the Gentiles, and that was kind of his thing. He would always go to the synagogue first, and then then he would move out from there. Well, there's no synagogue in Philippi, and so he has nowhere to talk to. And so he goes to the river. um, And I'm, I'm assuming I don't know if this was I couldn't find that this was a Jewish tradition or it may have been something he just heard about in the town, but he heard that they used to go to the river and pray in the evenings. And so he goes, basically goes to a prayer meeting at the river, and he uh, begins to tell people about Jesus at this prayer meeting. And we don't really have, other than the fact that they were interested and they listened to the whole thing, we don't really have any um, uh, evidence that anything major happened except he had one convert, a woman named Lydia, and it said that she believed and invited him back into her house. And so uh, Lydia, and we're assuming it just said that Lydia the seller of purple is all it says. And and so he goes back to Lydia's house and we just assume that she basically housed and bankrolled the church in Europe. Um, and because while he's in Philippi, uh, he grows enough of a church that we have some books that were written to that church from Paul. Um, and he was, uh, there was a, a a little girl that was following him around and harassing him. And he he, uh, cast a demon out of her um, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, she couldn't do any. She was apparently doing something um, for some merchants in the town that was making them money. And when Paul basically healed her, she could no longer do what she was supposed to do. And so, um, I might be mixing up stories here. I know there was something with the... He went on a huge trial. We'll have to look it up in Acts 16. Um, but uh, there was a huge trial because of, of what he does. I can't remember if he cast the demon out of her or if he just told her to be silent. Something happens that the merchants get upset that he's threatening their money and he has to go to trial. So he's taken to trial for basically interrupting the merchant's money. He's thrown in prison. We're real familiar with this story. He and Silas are chained. They're singing worship songs at midnight. The chains come off. The jailer is about to fall on his sword. He says, "Don't do that. We're all still here." The jailer says, "What do I do to be saved?" And then the big famous words: "Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved." He leads the entire jailer's family to the Lord um, in Philippi. He has this trial. They want to, when they find out he's a Roman soldier and that they beat him, and he wasn't supposed to get beaten because he was a Roman soldier. They want to sneak him out the back of town. He was like, "Hey, you brought me in publicly. You're taking me out publicly. It was this big scandal." They finally let him go, and they're kind of begging him not to like turn him in. And then there's this little verse at the bottom that it, that he goes back to Lydia's house and he says he went back and encouraged all the saints at Lydia's house and uh and blesses them and then moves on to the next town. And so all we know is the beginning of the chapter Lydia is the one convert, you know, at this weird riverside uh prayer meeting and she gets saved. And by the end of the book when he wants to go bless the church that he later writes letters to, it's Lydia's house where this is all happening. So as far as we know, we don't have a lot of story. There's not even a lot of um, uh, like church legend about Lydia. Just that she basically housed, invited in the first Christian church on European soil. Like she... In essence, started it all, and and she goes down in history as the seller of purple, like it's all we really know about her. This amazing supporting character, who and Paul, we're actually gonna um, spend Advent mostly in the book of Philippians, most of our stuff, and it's one of my favorite books because the the sheer amount of emotion that pours out of Paul whenever he talks. Um, to the Philippians or about the Philippians. Later when he talks to the Corinthians about the Philippians, there's this amazing amount of emotion that pours out of him when he talks about the Philippians, that he had this huge heart for this little church. And uh, and it all came from this seller of purple, this supporting character that as far as we know um, doesn't have any other role in the story other than she housed the first church in Europe and becomes kind of the mother, if you want to say that, of the European church, um, which is amazing to me. And so, on this first week of our saint series, I'm just mindful, and this is how I guess we'll respond to this, of the, the people that have gone before us. And, and so for this one, Lyman Beecher was where I chose to focus, but really it's about all the unnamed saints. All those people who um, did amazing things that nobody knows about to create and inspire and teach and train and motivate amazing people, and so, for our response, um, here's what I'd love to do, um, and we're going to do something a little bit tactile with it, which we haven't done, um, which will be fun, but as we as we go to the table um, and pray, um, just take a second as we're singing, just take a second and just kind of take an inventory of the people that have Touched your life in the past, and don't think of the, you know, the big ones—C.S. Lewis. Like, don't do that. Like, find you know, find somebody that you know that, that if you were to shout their name at me, I wouldn't know it. You know, somebody that that you know for a fact you wouldn't be here, worshiping Jesus, you wouldn't be here listening to the Word of God, you wouldn't be here engaged in the Christian life, um, and, and 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 numbering yourselves among the people of God. If not for that person, and then maybe. After, after we come to the table, there's a table full of candles back here. And this is kind of a Catholic practice. It's something that they do more often, but it, it'd be fun. And it's nothing, there's no magic. Nothing cool's gonna happen when you light the candle. Like, no. But it's, uh, it's more just a, just a sacramental act to say, I'm thinking about this person. And just light a candle. Um, and if that weirds you out, if that's, if that's too much, um, I get that. But, uh, yeah, just think, and then just let that person, you know, be in your mind and praise God and thank God for sending that person to you, for sending someone to you to inspire you, because you wouldn't be here without them. And so, um, yeah, that's my hopes, is that we would, uh, that we would take it to, um, to the point that we recognize that God sends people into our lives for that reason. That, that you don't have a Harriet Beecher Stowe without a Lyman Beecher. You don't have a Moses and Aaron without an Amram and a Jacobed.